Welcome to the first episode of Significant Lots, a Watch Collectors Roundtable. This will be a new weekly podcast featuring a roundtable of four watch collectors along with the occasional guest. We'll take a collector's perspective on topics in the watch industry, sharing our hot takes on modern moves and releases to coverage of the vintage market, auctions, and everything in between. Every week you'll hear from myself, Tony. I write a newsletter about watches called Rescapement, as well as contributing to publications like A Collected Man and Hodinkee. More importantly, you'll hear from Eric Wind, owner of Wind Vintage and an all-around expert on all things vintage. Eric is also a former VP Senior Specialist in Watches at Christie's, and before that, he was a contributor to Hodinkee. Hi, thanks for having me, and I'm excited if we can do this. I think the world needs more serious collector uh, content for watches. Along with Eric is Gabriel Bedenor, a prolific collector of modern, independent, and vintage watches based in New York. Gabriel, how's it going? It's going great. I'm excited to be here. I'm excited to uh, give the independent uh, perspective on all of this. Finally, there's Charlie Dunn, aka the infamous Books on Time on Instagram on the ones and twos, one of the most passionate lovers and learners of watches around, who also contributes to publications like Revolution and Collectability. Charlie, what's up? Hey guys, excited to uh, be here and talk about All right, with that, let's jump right into it, guys. Honestly, the initial idea of the podcast came about as we wanted to have a fun, honest, collector-focused conversation about the auctions happening in Geneva this November. So let's start there. Um, We'll throw this to you, Gabriel, and then maybe, Eric, you can respond and provide your own perspective. But we wanted to start by talking about the state of the auction, the, the state of the market, and the role of auctions in 2021. Any specific pockets of collecting or brands, independent, vintage, whatever it might be that you think are hot, that you think might see a hot or might pop this auction season. Gabriel, what do you think? Hey, thanks. Um, I think the independents are having a really strong showing as of late. Uh, It started a couple of years ago, but it's really sort of taken off. You know, we see brands like Debithune and Urwerk that are totally sold out everywhere, and the only options are are really to get them at uh, at auction sometimes. And it's kind of cool to see these pieces pop up, and I'm really excited to see the Urwerk in the Phillips auction come up. Not so much the only the only watch one because you know everything at only watch tends to go for a trillion dollars, and that sort of isn't so much fun to see where the real market is but it's definitely really cool to see more independence integrated into these auctions and and i think we're gonna see higher prices i mean we're already not seeing many of them on things like chrono 24 so you know it's it's a new it's a new world and i also think uh longa's about halfway into their their rise and you know i remember the days when you could buy a datagraph for 30k and it's just not the case anymore and you know we've got plms going for over half a million and we have you know some some of the handwork schools going for 600 plus i think uh, i think that's that's really where the biggest gains are right now but you know i mean the all the staple Vintage pieces seem to be pretty stable right now, and that's pretty nice to see as well. So we see some of the maturity there, but really it's the crazier independents that get me excited, and it's nice to see them show up in earnest throughout the entire auction season and not just in Hong Kong or in New York. You mentioned vintage a little bit there, and Eric, that's where we want you to jump in, obviously. Um, Can you give us a little bit of perspective on the market going into the auction season, what you're expecting to see in Geneva and at the auctions over the next couple of weeks, and any predictions you might want to make? 
Yeah. Um, they're looking at the, the auction so far this year uh, and over the last couple years, we've obviously seen the rise of the independence. Um, Cartier is doing incredibly strong thanks to the rescapement bump it's been getting over the last couple of years. And uh, in spite of the bump, yeah. Yes. <laughs> I'm expecting uh, Max Bill original watches to be skyrocketing anytime soon. Skip, be, I'm sure. Skip them up now, guys. Yeah. <laughs> It'll be on the cover of the next Phillips catalog, I think. Um, but um, but uh, yeah, I'm referencing uh, Tony's great article of the watch of the week on the original Younghin's Max Bill watches for Hodinkee and. Uh, it's Tony's first article on, on Hodinkee. So that was really awesome. Um, so that, that's the first thing we saw recent, the most recent kind of auction of significance was there were two, the Monaco legend auction, um, the auction house co-owned by Davide Parmigiani and then Sotheby's Hong Kong as well. Um, we've seen, you know, Vintage has been stable, as Gabe put it, but hasn't been going through the incredible growth it saw a few years ago. I think there's a few reasons behind that. One, the really exceptional condition pieces still bring record numbers, but collectors and others can pretty much easily move those themselves and dealers like myself. So you don't have to go through the whole auction process give up, you know, north of 25% to the auction house. Um, and, you know, as a result, there there is less of those kind of blue chip, high quality bread and butter watches coming to auction. Um, I can tell you some more stories about, you know, watches that were stolen and damaged at auction, et cetera. Um, so we can, that's the dark side of consigning to, uh, to auction. but. Um, for pieces where there's, you know, I, I, and I'll tell people this when they're consigning to auction, it makes sense to consign a watch to auction. That's a very hard watch to value and where there's great demand. Uh, so that's been the case with Jorn, you know, there was the Jorn, uh, subscription tourbillon that just sold in Sotheby's Hong Kong, um, for $2 million. Um, unfortunately I sold one. Uh, a few months back for far, far less. Uh, <laughs> and it was uh, also one of the 20. And um, that watch that sold at Sotheby's sold while I was at Christie's, I hope I'm allowed to say this, for under a quarter of a million dollars. And just, you know, five years ago, one sold at Phillips for 161,000 Swiss francs. So we're, we've literally seen the watch go up 9x, you know, almost uh, at least 8x uh, in five years' time. <laughs> so, um, you know, not too many things performing like that except maybe uh, cryptocurrencies and <laughs> Bitcoin. But, um, yeah, I think, uh, I think, you know, it's there are some interesting pieces coming up. There's some Royal Oaks. It's beginning to see a lot of Royal Oak mania. If you look at the Christie's Geneva catalog, there's a whole multiple rows and rows on the online of Royal Oaks and uh, a bunch of rare perpetual calendar models and other, you know, interesting special dials. The 
the uh, the pink dials or salmon as people call them and uh, blue dials, etc. So those should do well. Uh, at Monaco Legend, we saw some of the 1950s Rolex watches do really well, particularly they had two really special date justs one with the black dial with six diamonds on it and another in new old stock condition. So, um, you know, that's good to see the market interested in some of those pieces that have been, you know, those, those watches basically were bringing prices above Paul Newman's when you would think they'd be a fraction of that. So, um, yeah, there's, uh, there's always changes in the market and, uh, I'm excited to see what's going to happen, uh, this weekend. Eric, I'm excited for the uh, for the Messina watches for the Mings. I think that's actually it's actually you know it, it's cool to see not one but two, and you know I think it's going to be fun to see how the market reacts to all the noise around it at its release. Yeah. It's going to add more infamy to it. Yeah. But uh, another brand I want to I want to mention quickly is that we're starting to see a lot of Grand Seiko which is not something that we saw even a year ago. This is pretty new and, you know, that's not going for the two to five grand. We're, we're talking about, you know, 20, 40 in some cases. And they're, they're actually trading for um, some multiples of the high estimates, which is, which is astounding because, you know, they're not particularly rare or hard to find, uh, but they are starting to show up in some of the bigger auctions, which I think is pretty cool. Gabriel, is it something that makes you more interested in the brand as a collector? And then Eric, is it something that you see more interest in on the dealer side? I mean, it feels like a market that's a little bit separate from the Swiss watchmaking in general. So I'm wondering if it's gotten you guys interested in the brand at all, the way they're coming up at auction more often. Uh, for me, it hasn't it hasn't really uh, piqued my interest any more than it already was, and I always appreciated the brand. I've I've never bought one. Um, I have a Seiko, a vintage one, but I, I don't. You know, it, it's not something that that particularly speaks to me. It's not as esoteric or crazy as I try to go. So it's it's kind of in this like dead spot for me, which is kind of too classical, but not modern enough so you know i i just like that the market is quote unquote discovering new niches that are coming up and exposing more people to it um you know it's it i i like that you know so anything new that brings more more collectors into the marketplace is is good yeah and i would i would echo that i've actually never owned a grand seiko either although i like the brand. I like uh, Brees, who is the North American president. He previously was at Omega when I was involved with the Speedmaster 50 auction in 2015 at Christie's. We worked closely with him uh, when I did a kind of a tour of the country to a few different Omega boutiques with with uh, some of the highlighted lots. Um, so it's phenomenal what they've done. Very, very smart. Um you know, leadership. They're not throwing money around from what I can see. They're investing very wisely in the small number of things they do. Um, Definitely could see that the vintage Grand Seiko models were going to take off. And in fact, some of the VFA models talking to people that follow those, they would value them at over a hundred thousand dollars, some of the rare ones. So if we saw that happen at auction, I think it would go, you know, even crazier. Um, it's a lot of the, it's a watch where a lot of people feel like they should own one, like the collector secret or whatever. Um, 
I guess as a result, I might push back against that a little bit, even though I like them. But the cases are not my favorite, to be honest, compared to Swiss cases. The lugs are pretty chunky for having such refined dials. I do like the dials and I like the hands on these a lot. Um, the other element I would say about why I really haven't purchased them is, you know, not knowing the market precisely, but more importantly, not knowing the exact specifics of what I'm buying. Many of these watches, to my understanding, they're almost all were sold in Japan originally, almost exclusively for the Grand Seikos. So I'm not really finding them from original owners. I bought King Seikos before. I bought tons of Seikos from original owners here in the U.S. Um, but I've never seen a, a Grand Seiko original owner watch, whether I was at Christie's or just as an independent dealer. And that's one way, as you buy more of something, you understand what's correct or not. So my sense is many of the watches might be kind of Frankenstein watches or modified, improved um, and kind of the collector community of Grand Seiko people, some of them have turned me off as well. I won't name names now, maybe in a future episode. But uh, but um, that turns me off because if you have a collector community that's very like welcoming and open and stuff, that, that really has a big impact, I would say, on wanting to own it. So basically, I wouldn't go and buy one from some of the people that, that really traffic in the brand. And, uh, you know, I still hope to find one from an original owner one day or find many of them, but Japan is kind of a closed society in terms of watches and, and everything else. It's very hard to get watches out of there based on shipping. Oftentimes people do transactions in, in cash. So if they're selling them or buying them, they'll bring literally suitcases of cash around Tokyo. Um, so it's, it's not like I'm going to get an email out of the blue from someone in Japan who's an original owner of a Grand Seiko and want to ship it to me by FedEx or something. It's just not going to happen, unfortunately, where, where it does with many other countries and brands. One of the things we were talking about before this that we wanted to touch on, I think Gabe, brought it up initially, but when we were flipping through the catalogs for a lot of these auctions, one of the things that sometimes jumps out is how they put estimates quite low. Uh, sometimes you might hear them called teaser estimates, maybe. Um, so Eric, we wanted to get your perspective first as a former auctioneer. Um, if you could talk a bit about the process that goes into thinking about and setting the estimates for a lot and thoughts you might have about the process that we're referencing here of setting estimates um, lower than what you think the market might actually be. Yeah, I think um, I, I'm not a huge fan of the teaser estimate approach. And of course, Phillips is known most for that, like putting watches in it, like one or $2,000 sometimes when they're going to go for 20 plus. Um, that there's, of course, pros and cons. Okay, the pro side from, from the Phillips perspective for doing that. One, they can be extremely lazy. You know, Heritage Auctions would do this too. Original owner, Paul Newman, they were going to put it in at a dollar starting, you know, <laughs> and my, my friends, uh, Keith Davis and Jonathan Burford told Jim Wolf, who's a friend and sort of old school guy there, we can't do that. People are going to laugh at us. Like, and Jim's like, yeah, but the owner is okay with it. <laughs> and they're like, 
people are going to think we're a joke. We can't do that. So we need a realistic estimate. Okay. So that's the pro side. You can be extremely lazy. You can also say, wow, these watches sold, you know, a thousand percent above low estimate and all this sort of stuff too. And it's like, you can put all that stuff in the press release that five people read at the end of the day. No one really reads the press release, but, um, you can come up with all kinds of statistics. The cons from my perspective are you're not really giving any indication to people who don't know what the value is. And, you know, we would see that at Christie's if we had a watch in at a real low estimate, you could get 50 people registering to bid, but they're not, they're thinking it's like a $10,000 watch when it's a $50,000 watch. And uh, they end up just wasting their time you know, bidding and we end up wasting our time talking to them, that sort of stuff. That's a negative. The other negative is if the watch is stolen under most contracts or damaged during the preview, the standard contract language is that it's insured at the mid estimate. So that supposedly happened, you know, with a mill sub that was at Phillips that was stolen. Sorry, there's a little drilling noise in the background, but there was a mill sub that was swapped out for a fake during a preview because it's a NATO strap and it was at a pretty low teaser estimate. So it would have sold for double what the mid estimate was, no question. And uh, instead someone swapped it, went to the airport and flew uh, to Europe and the watch is never seen again. Um, it happened at Christie's when a watch was damaged um a 2526 that was dropped and the it was only dropped about six inches and the dial shattered into over 20 pieces that were floating around inside like a snow globe so um that that meant the watch was going to sell for double what the mid estimate was at least and uh you know instead the owner got that mid estimate number. So, um, and I think they worked it out. So they gave them a little bit extra, but it was not great. So there is, uh, that's the con, you know, and I think, you know, when you have ridiculously low estimates, it's not good for the market from my perspective or for those that are getting into it. You mentioned it earlier. Um, the Monaco Cartier auction from last month, I wanted to touch on it a little bit just to get your thoughts. Maybe it's specifically on that auction, but more broadly speaking, your thoughts on single brand thematic auctions like that and how they can impact the market for that particular brand or whatever the particular theme is. It's a positive for the market uh, in some respects, particularly for something that's growing in interest. Um, it is a, it can be a negative for the market when you superheat a market that's already heating up. Um, the positive with Cartier is that it's not just a few models. I mean, it's such a diverse brand and everything's, you know, near unique based on case metal dial, et cetera. When you get to the collector stuff, um, the, it's different for Hoyer when the Hoyer auction at Phillips, the Hoyer parade in 2017 was like three models, primarily Carrera, Octavia and Monaco. And everyone was expecting record numbers and prices had moved up already a lot. And there was too high of expectation. And I liken it to like something in a microwave that 
you're overheating and it just explodes. Um, that's basically what happened. So my favorite thematic auctions are not a single brand, but more a theme. So the, I thought the double signed auction that Phillips did was great because it's a whole variety of different watches, brands, retailers. There's nothing to superheat specifically. It just drives more interest in double signed watches a little bit and it's not going crazy. Whereas like the Daytona ultimatum auction really killed slash exploded the Daytona market. The day date auction didn't really do any favors to the day date auction. And the, uh, the Hoyer auction was a disaster. I just want to jump in on the last thing that we're talking about, the, the estimates, um, as, as a collector and somebody who buys at auction quite often, I, I find it, um, I, I totally ignore the estimates now because they're they're usually 100% inaccurate. But what frustrates me, and I, and I had this conversation with an auction house now because I, 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 I uh, consigned a rather large piece and they wanted to put an estimate that was basically like 2% higher than what I had purchased it for four years prior. And the closest comps were at 2.5x that. And I, you know, and I, and I said, you know, I don't want to say fraud, go so far as to say that, but I want to say it's definitely misleading when you assume that they've got these uh, big panels, then, you know, the advisory boards for the subject matter experts. And because we don't, we don't always know where the private dealers are, are selling certain pieces for, you assume that they have a deeper knowledge of some of this stuff and they're putting in estimates that are just absurd and i think it turns a lot of people away once they get there and they sign up and they register and you know like eric said you, you wasted people's times but also turns them off because they have a budget in mind that's within the estimates typically and all of a sudden you know it goes two three four x when you knew the watch was gonna do a stupid number to begin with i you know they're they're it's kind of I, I, the people who know, know what the value of this stuff is. And it, it's really a shame because we, as collectors, we rely on them for condition reports. We, we can only do so much verification during the previews and you, you take them at their face value for a lot of the condition, for a lot of, um, the provenance when that, when that plays into it and everything. And then the estimates just... You, it leaves a lot of questions, and it's it's just a definitely a weird situation when those estimates are are just wildly inaccurate. I mean, if we look at other markets, you know, we we use comps for for you know for real estate, which is an asset class that that's that's really important, and we have appraisals. You know, we don't really have accurate appraisals for for watches necessarily, so it becomes a big question, uh, on, on what, you know, how do you put these, um, estimates together and why are they lower than, you know, they'll be, even if you want to attract some people. So put them a little bit lower, but don't put them like two to five times lower than what, you know, the market is, you know, it, it, it just doesn't always sit right with me. Yeah. The other thing I would agree with all that 110%, I basically tell new collectors I'm working with that an estimate 
is really only helpful now for most auction houses to indicate the reserve or the minimum price a watch could sell for because the low estimate is the reserve or could be below that, but you know it could sell at that low estimate price. So there are times we had a watch that was a Jean-Claude Killy with what seems to be a unique dial, Rolex, at Christie's. And it came from the son of the original owner who was a jeweler on 47th Street. And um, he walked it around 47th Street and a few dealers told him it was fake, basically, that he could basically throw the watch away. Well, we saw the watch and decided to put it in at a low estimate because it was, you know, it was polished. It wasn't the best condition, but we would promote it well at 50 to a hundred thousand is the estimate. And he said, yeah, but I'd like a reserve of 15,000, uh, because I just want it to sell. I'd be happy if I got 15, I thought it was worthless. So we had it at 50, but the reserve was actually 15. Well, the watch ended up selling for 490,000 plus with premium, um, which was great. $499,500, I believe. Um, but, uh, you know, that low estimate indicates where it could sell. So that's useful. I, when I was at Christie's, I pushed them to double the low estimate for the high estimate. So if it's instead of five to 8,000 as an estimate, for instance, I said five to 10, if it's 20 to 30, why don't we say 20 to 40? Typically the low estimate and the high estimate would only have a difference of 50%. But I said, let's increase it to a hundred percent. So 20 to, from 20 to 30 to 20 to 40, I could see it actually being more useful now. And I, we're beginning to see even in Christie's Geneva, they have an AP 32 millimeter in that's got a really weird estimate of 13 to 28, where the high estimate's a little above double. But if we're going to go with this teaser game, why not, if you've got a watch that's 20 to 40, make it 20 to 80, you know, if it's going to be something that's actually going to sell for like 80 all in, you think, but you don't know exactly. So you could have a high estimate that's 4X the low. That's an idea I think that would at least help new people getting into the auction world to not be so surprised if it sells for 80 when the high estimate is 40. And I think it's better. So just to give you an idea for how the watch auction has grown, uh, watch auction world has grown. My last year at Christie's 2017, Christie's and Phillips both had over 400 people registered for their watch auction uh, in Geneva which is by far the biggest. And the auctions were maybe 200 lots, you know, 250 lots. Um, That was kind of very big. When I started in 2015, it might've been like 250 to 300 people registered, mostly the trade. So a lot of dealers and then some private collectors. So you've got an almost one lot to one registrant ratio, um, you know, six years ago. This past year, the I believe Phillips had 2,400 people registered for their Geneva auction. So 6x growth in four years. And the reality is there's, you could see where in a few years, it's 10,000 people or even more, just given the amount of people interested in watches now. Um, so, you know, you've got to also be helpful to those that don't know what they're doing necessarily and just want to buy something and give them a realistic estimate. 
And that type of growth, I would imagine, just adds to the unpredictability of what a watch might sell for, right? I mean, you don't even know who, if you've got 4,000 people registered or whatever the number is, you don't know them the way you know 200 or 300 collectors that are registering. Exactly. It is. That's why we see sometimes crazy results and you can't predict, you know, that two people really, really want something. Do you guys remember the estimates on the two PLMs, the Vilanga PLMs that were at last auction cycle in May that went up? One was, uh, I forget which auction house had it, but uh, the platinum one they were was at Christie's. something like, yeah, well, Christie's one, one, yeah, it was 90 to 120 and it ended up doing like 500. Yes. And then, and even in, and even the the rose gold with the bracelet that they sold had had a very low estimate as well. You just yep. wonder, you know. Yeah, it's tough. Not even, and that's such an odd estimate that it. If it, I think it was like ninety to one twenty. It's like, why not do ninety to one eighty? That was always the thing I would say. You know, so what if it? They're just worried about. Oh, it's going to look like not great if it sells within the estimate, but that's all right. You don't need to say it sold like a thousand percent above the low estimate in my opinion. Um, yeah, that was interesting because both of them reportedly came from the Samsung family in South Korea and consigned by the government of South Korea, uh, like a $10 billion consignment of art antiquities and watches to Christie's. And, uh, he's got a bunch of unpaid taxes why. or something, right? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So it was like part of the estate kind of transfer and they just gave all the stuff to the government of Korea to help defray the tax cost. And, uh, yeah, that, you know, when you're dealing with an estate situation, you can't, you know, the auction houses would put real low ball estimates. I saw it. Maybe I was even guilty of it in some cases, <laughs> but, you know, you, because no one knows what it's really worth or no one knows what they paid for it, it like that person who bought it is long gone. So no one, there's no real stakeholder <laughs> on anyone's side to push <laughs> to a realistic estimate. It's just like, let's just start it at a dollar and see what happens. <laughs> so. Do you guys want to talk about Longa more for a second? I mean, Gabe, you mentioned it at the top and seeing it as at the middle of maybe a growth phase. And I feel like historically the narrative has been maybe that they haven't exploded in the way other modern independents, even though they're not independent or horology brands have perhaps grown. So I wonder if you guys want to expand a little bit more on the market for Longa and, and what you're seeing there. Sure. Definitely. We're seeing a lot of uh, interest that, that hasn't been there because traditionally you bought a piece at, uh, at retail and you were pretty it was pretty sure that you would lose about 60% when you went to sell it like just standard 60% and you know it, it, lately we've seen it uh, sort of trending up you know there were there was a lot of hype around the steel longa ones and they just started popping up for sale all of a sudden and seems like everybody who's anyone has one or has had one and you know that that sort of plateaued it feels but other pieces like early longa ones have quadrupled in the last two years and you know plms earlier pieces even you know original datographs again you could have bought them in the low 30s a couple of years ago now they're easily going in the 80s and 90s which is which is kind of nice to see because they're not 
you know, you're, you're not going to lose your shirt if you're buying this stuff and it's great stuff. It's interestingly designed, great movements, great architecture for the package that they put in very traditional, but also it's been accessible to, to the masses. And I think maybe that it has partly to do with the Odysseus when they started launching that. And then now with the pullback from ADs to go mostly to boutiques and they're trying to uh, tighten the supply with a lot of these um, applications for any piece over 50 K, you know, which, you know, we can get into that. I find it to be odd and, kind of alienating, but it seems like they're trying to keep a lid on, on all of that. And at the same time, Hey, you know, all it takes is one auction cycle for things to, to really go crazy. And then everything else just gets dragged up by it. And, you know, like I mentioned, we saw in the last auction cycle in, in Hong Kong, we saw that, uh, that, uh, handwork schoonst, uh, went for like $600,000, which I think is, is probably the record for, uh, for a longa at auction. And, you know, we're, we're seeing Other than the, again, uh, the steel one well, for charity. Yeah. Yeah. Charity, but I mean, you know, um, but yeah, I mean, with that, we're seeing the two PLMs that have, you know, done four and $500,000, you know, there's another one coming for sale and, you know, there's, there's some, interesting ones at Phillips in, in uh, Geneva. And we'll, we'll see where that goes, but there's been increasing interest simply because it's been much more affordable, so to speak, than, you know, vintage Pateks and a lot of the independents. And it has sort of this in between style and, you know, mechanically interesting stuff and they, they do some really great stuff. And so I think the market's finally, realized that this might be something after about 27 years that that we've reached a point where the maturity is is starting to to settle in and people are starting to appreciate it for what it is and you know it, it might be more liquidity all around that's driving these prices up as well but definitely we're seeing at least from from my side I see a lot of people trying a lot harder to get certain pieces and they're willing to pay above and beyond what, you know, what they were even, even six months ago, um, each, each time, which both a blessing and a, and a curse. Continuing with that, there's a lot of talk and I think there are a lot of people that are sort of following the herd, no question. And that's part of why we see markets explode, uh, because too many people are buying it for hype. Um, that hasn't happened with Jorn, unfortunately, but the Jorn stuff going up like that is insane. And I think a lot of the people buying it are just saying, oh, I feel like I need Jorns or early Jorns are the next big thing, etc." That's the case with Longa as well. Um, uh, so um, that I would hope the mar- I think the market's still nascent and early, but there's a huge potential for the market blowing up in a sense too. So I don't, you want stable growth in prices. Um, You don't want prices to just skyrocket so crazy overnight. Going back to what Gabe said about the data graph, those always seemed very undervalued given. So the last retail on the 39 millimeter one was 105 K and literally if you walked out of the store with that watch, you know, 
seven years ago or whatever it was, you would be lucky to get 35, you know, brand new secondhand. And uh, how can your signature watch lose that much value over 65% when you walk out the door at a time when Rolexes were like Daytona's were still obviously selling at a premium, not what they are today, but still at a good premium. So, um, yeah, it's, it's insane, but they've been turning it around. It's the hot thing. There used to be literally, I think beginning of last year, there were 110 39 millimeter data graphs on Chrono 24, you know, priced as low as the high thirties. And, uh, and now they're priced at 70 plus and not nearly as many up there. So, um, yeah, I mean, I think uh, it's they're great watches. I've always felt they're they're a little bit formal because of the whole alligator strap thing I've talked about. Like same with Patek Philippe, it's like people don't want to wear the shiny brown or black alligator strap on their watch, but you can make it more casual. And um, they're you know. They've obviously dipped their toe into the sport watch with the Odysseus, but we'll see what happens. I was wondering if I could uh, jump back to the uh, Cartier sale and, and just thematic auctions in general. I was curious to hear y'all's take on, you know, what you think is the best approach. Obviously, single brand auctions are kind of a little bit difficult, and then sometimes people are more receptive to like Chronograph's start stop reset auction was received really well. Do you think that any of the brands outside of Cartier perhaps have the cachet to basically perform on a single brand auction? I don't love the single brand auctions generally. Um, I guess if you are doing something to show the full breadth of a company, like I thought the the Hoyer parade, the big mistake there was just focusing on the sixties and seventies and only sourcing from two collectors instead of a community oriented approach. But I thought, you know, what if you go back to the 1930s and forties and fifties chronographs and everything else, you know, if you're just doing the Daytona, of course you're limiting the day, you know, just to Daytona's primarily from the sixties, seventies and eighties with some, the modern ones thrown in, but you've, you've got to have sort of a broader story of a company and, um, and I think we'll bring in more people. So I prefer auctions that are more, more of the like double signed approach. There's been no real military thematic auction, but that could be politically incorrect, I guess. So auction houses haven't really touched it. But um, but I thought that would be would be one of those themes that hasn't really been picked. You could have dive watches. No one's done like a early days of diving auction. There was the start stop reset chronograph auction for steel chronographs, which was good. Um, but you know that's even limiting. Why not have gold chronographs too and platinum? But um, yeah, I think. Um, in general, not a huge fan of the uh, of the single brand or model thematic auctions. I just don't find them that interesting. Um, I know we're all expecting the one for for uh, you know the, the anniversary of the Royal Oak. Not excited for it personally. I think you know we've seen everything. You know maybe they'll sell the prototype RD two. Um, 
and you know maybe some things out of their archive that they can wrangle out of APs. But otherwise, I I don't I just don't find the Royal Oak that interesting, um, especially when you look at the history of AP. Um, I mean, it's just an incredible brand. But you know, back to you know the what was it the hundred seventy fifth uh, Patek auction. It was also okay, but then I found the catalog for the 150th anniversary auction, and it was so much more complete, so much, you know, so much, so much more relevant. Just because it, it, it didn't have really many Nautiluses in there, I don't even think it had one in there. You know, definitely no Aquanauts because this is an '89. Um, so you know, I, I just it, they really highlighted you know the the chronometry, the special orders, the special pieces, the firsts, and uh, you know I find that to, to have been much more interesting. I think it was an antique quorum sale, um, but yeah, I, I think there's just so many cool uh, you know types of watches out there and brands that it's hard to just pick one and stick to it um, you know for wholesale. Gabe, I mean, you're such a varied collector. I know you've got independent and modern and vintage in your portfolio as well. At this period in time, going into these auctions without showing your cards too much, of course, what are you looking at collecting or potentially buying this auction season? Um, Are you following the trends or are you um, zigging when everyone else is zagging and looking at things that perhaps other people aren't looking at and trying to find value? I don't know in those in those areas. Um, sorry for the noise. My landscapers are leaf blowing out there. Um, I, I mean, I typically try to stick to, um, just stuff that I find interesting. Um, you know, obviously I have my eye on the Urwerk at the Phillips sale, but, and I, and I do a lot of military watches and, you know, I just bought a watch that I've been just, just as we were talking, I, I got the text that we, we have a deal on this, uh, but, uh, but a Tudor, uh, a Tudor snowflake that was, uh, issued to Shayat at 13. Um, so, so I've been, I've been, I've been after one of those for a couple of years, but I think with, with the crazy entry price right now of, you know, there used to be, you know, last year, two years ago, three years ago, even you could go on Chrono 24 and find any MBNF you wanted, any Debith you and any Urwork, and they were they were discounted. Uh, there's like one LM Perpetual on on Chrono 24, and it's at a premium. And so there, there's definitely a, a, a different shift in in collectors' mentalities. And you know, uh, there was an independent watch that was that was launched recently that I'm interested in, and I contacted the brand that i'm close with and they and we were discussing the price they didn't even publicly announce and when they told me the price i go wow that's a big price and then i said you know is there anything is there anything we can do there and they said uh, no allocations are the new discounts and i think that's that seems to be really true when it comes to all these quirky independents that nobody really paid attention to, especially at auctions a couple of years ago. Now they're they're going for crazy money. I mean, you know, Vuitton's never really did well before. You know, four years ago, you could find them on Chrono Twenty Four, and now they're just you know expect to spend a hundred k for for your basic Vuitton. And but you know, so it's a little disheartening in the sense that. I'm used to not going above retail for a lot of these independents. And now if I want them, I have to expect to pay a significant premium. 
uh, which you know is is a difficult pill to swallow after so many years of taking losses on independence. But you know, it's it, there's definitely you know some cool things. I, I have my eyes on the Ming. You know, I like the um, the Bulgari Tadaanda always, and I think uh, you know the Grubel Force the. the 24 degree incline tourbillon is a very undervalued piece for for the quality of what it is top tier finishing really interesting mechanics questionable aesthetics depending on who you are but I, it seems to be a very undervalued piece in terms of what similar pieces if you look at you know tourbillons from any other brand they're you know that's that's pretty hot right now they're they're moving at uh, much bigger numbers than than that, and I think it, the it's it's a pretty decent buy at auction still because of the crazy astronomical uh, retail on Grubel Forces. Um, otherwise, you know, I I do like some of the uh, some some the vintage stuff that they have, but really the Debessions, the Resences, I, I want to see how they do. You know, I like the. Uh, Oh, I like the Cartier with the jump hour. I've always liked those. Those are those are always really cool. But one piece that that kind of sticks out is the prototype um, Ulysse Nardin Freak, which I think is it, nobody's really talking about it on on Instagram. Nobody's talking about it on anywhere, um, and that that might that might surprise a couple of people. Uh, I think it was, it's a very cool watch in any form, but to have the prototype is is definitely special, and it's. I don't want to say a reasonable estimate, but it's not a huge estimate on it. So, you know, we'll see. Um, you know, the the modern Rolex is not really chasing those too much. But, uh, yeah. You know, it's interesting. I was looking at the Philips catalog this morning, and I think the first two lots were the colored dial um, OPs, and they pulled them from the auction. So, um a couple less uh, modern Rolexes for you to choose from there, I think. Um, and it's interesting. I think you kind of listed through a bunch of independents and you didn't touch much on vintage stuff you might be looking at, which is obviously where Eric comes in. And Eric, you mentioned this at the top, um, how there's perhaps just more liquidity in the vintage market and things are trading privately. And perhaps the, that's the case as to why Gabe and other collectors may be looking at uh, auctions more for independence, but wondering what you're looking at this auction season on the vintage side of things, if anything at all. I'm looking at a few things. I guess I fe- I don't know when this is coming out. If we're releasing it before the auction, <laughs> right? I don't want to create competitors to myself. So I would I would I guess I have to exercise your cards. Um, generally speaking, though, right? Um, broadly speaking, I should say. Um, even broadly, I don't know if I can say. <laughs> the, you know, if I think about looking through all the catalogs there's a lot of modern rolex you know i guess because people think they'll just go for crazy numbers um there's a lot of royal oaks um so we'll see how those do more than ever no question um and uh you know the high quality vintage stuff there's not a ton to be honest a lot of the things i've looked at have have defects so there's kind of a cool cream dial ap perpetual in steel at christie's royal oak and uh, it's got a scratch on the dial well if you're spending north of two hundred thousand dollars on a watch 
on this cream dial, there's like this very noticeable scratch or, or do you, you know, how am I, if I buy that, how am I supposed to resell that to someone and be like, well, the scratch isn't that noticeable <laughs> and you're spending a quarter million dollars plus on something. So, um, you know, it's hard to find something, you know, that that's, uh, you know, that doesn't have some issue, I will say, you know, that's my, my thinking about this Geneva season with vintage. You mentioned that um, Audemars Piguet Precision a minute ago, the little 32 millimeter one, which I noticed uh, Ben Clymer wrote up in a few sentences in an article he published the other day. Um, is yeah. it stuff like that that you might be interested in that's a little bit more perhaps um, niche or under the radar perhaps? Well, yeah, I guess the issue as a, you know, as a dealer, um, for me to buy an auction and then try to resell at say 10% above that, that's not easy to do because everyone's seen it. And, you know, if they really wanted it, they could have bought it themselves. Um, you don't typically buy like a multi hundred thousand dollar watch and then be able to suddenly get a lot more for it. That was definitely the case back in the day. You know, back in the 80s and 90s, it was almost exclusively trade bidding at auction and each dealer had their own private private buyers. And occasionally, even when I was at Christie's, you'd see dealers team up um, and maybe buy something uh, and then be able to resell it sometimes for like 40 or 50% more within a week or two. Um, but I just don't think that's the model today. It's... Um, it's much more unlikely to, to find a buyer who's not seen it already or would, you know, you're not trying to fool anyone. You know, the serial numbers are easily available and I'll tell people where the watch came from, but you then have to justify why they're paying a premium for something you just bought like a several weeks before. I think the last thing we wanted to touch on is maybe only watch. So Christie's is hosting only watch. Um, in conjunction with a lot of the other auctions and wondering if that gets your guys's attention at all, or if there's any specific watches that are um, interesting, not necessarily to buy, but just from a pure um, enthusiast perspective, even. Uh, no, it doesn't get me excited at all. I think the prices are, are stupid. It's just a pissing contest. Uh, it doesn't really seem to matter what the watch is or the brand. It's just, uh, Let's see who's got uh, who's got more stamina on that arm to raise the paddle. But you know, I mean, I've I've definitely been stuff a couple of years ago at at Only Watch and never won anything. Um, but again, it seems to just be dial variations for the most part, not really special pieces. And you know, we've seen some really cool collaborations between you know David Yoon and Laurent Ferrier, David Yoon Erwerk. And those are the kinds of things I like to see where, you know, they're actually putting their their abilities to the test and doing something new, creative, and very uh, specific for that purpose rather than, you know, hey, let me sell you the first one or let me sell you the prototype with a cool dial and engraved on the case back. Only watch. I mean, it, it, you know, it's not that cool to me. And I think it's not worth the ridiculous premium where you could buy 10 of them and, you know, get yourself whatever dial you actually want. Um, the, the Patek clock is, is, is cool. I mean, that's, 
that'll do what 50 million i mean you know it's it's not out of the realm of possibility i mean there's chatter that the the rec shop will cross a million dollars i mean you know that it's what a sixty-five thousand dollar watch um because it's the first one for chronometric contemporary two i mean come on <laughs> you, know, I, you know it's not you know it's not that exciting but uh but some of the collaborations i i do i obviously like the roman gautier he's he it's a new line that he's launching a new watch and he's launching it there so that's that's kind of interesting um you know i i love the stuff that he does um the artwork is one of my favorite watches of all time so of course that's great but Again, I'm more excited about the one at Philips because that's more telling where the market is and where enthusiast interest is rather than uh, sovereign wealth funds. Eric, I hope you're not as down on only watch as Gabe is. Um, I'm not as down on it, I guess, but <laughs> it sounds like there might be a little bitterness there from lost lots in the past. <laughs> and that's clouding his vision and judgment. <laughs> but um only watch. Um, I remember when Christie's was having the meetings uh, to take it away from Phillips uh, back in, in 2016, 2017. And uh, it's a really collaborative thing for the watch industry and a positive thing for everyone to get involved with. So it's, it's a lot of fun. You know, I joke that in that room, like is almost every important person in the modern watch industry. And if a bomb went off, like that'd be, that'd be it for modern Swiss watches. <laughs> so we need to have some designated survivors, which is why I won't be in the room this time. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> I think um, it's, it's, it's very exciting. I'm excited to see the desk clock and uh, excited to just see, you know, the genre fist. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> So, um, yeah, I, I mean, I don't really bid on any of those things. I don't think you can buy something there and expect to resell it for profit. Like you're going to probably take a bath <laughs> big time if you want to sell it in the first few years after owning it. But, um, yeah, I hope everything does really well. The Royal Oak looks really sick, you know, and in titanium, it's the last... 15202 Michael Friedman kind of designed it as a nod to collectors and to to what they they do so I'm excited since you were there Eric, it sounds I, like a little go ahead Gabe sorry I I, I have a question because you were on the other side of this I always wondered who gets the tax deduction on it because you're technically paying the auction house if you win and then the auction house is paying the charity so I assume you can't take as the buyer actually take the tax deduction. That, is that so, or is it? Is there a way to circumvent that? Well, um, I think that some people probably do take the tax deduction for different countries. Um, that's my understanding. Um, you know, not having something uh, be legal has never stopped many people. <laughs> so, so I think that some people will will uh, would rather. Um, beg forgiveness and ask for permission when it comes to that. And I think some people in certain countries and jurisdictions may be taking tax deductions on that watch purchases. I'd only watch, maybe not the others, but they, they try to make the case, I guess, and maybe their tax authorities won't investigate. 
Well, guys, I think we're going to end it there for the first episode of Significant Lots, a Watch Collector's well, Roundtable. Gabe, Gabe has a last question, I think. No, I already asked it. Oh, he, asked, he wanted to know about the taxes. He just yeah. was concerned about making sure he gets his tax deductions. Okay, so I think good. we've got him covered there. All um, right, okay, good. So thanks again, guys. And we'll look forward to hopping on again next week to, to talk about everything that happened and, and that and more. Awesome. Thanks, guys. See you. All right. And thanks for listening, everyone.